Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements, nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tserar, and now let's talk blockchain. Before I introduce our guest today, I have a couple of brief updates for our community. We invite everyone to join us on Twitter Spaces, where we pre-stream each episode the day before full public distribution on all major podcast platforms. For the platform list, visit our website, blockchainrecorded.com. We also have an NFT program with Blockchain Recorded Community NFTs. These can be claimed from our homepage. So check us out, visit our website, and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for updates and potential airdrops. And so now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Pradeep Goel. Pradeep, welcome to Blockchain Recorded. It's a pleasure to be here, Nina, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I, I hope that I pronounced your name correctly, your last name. It is correct, Pradeep Goel. Okay, great. I will go ahead and introduce you further to, to our audience. You are the CEO of SolveCare. So this is the extensive healthcare project that we will speak about today. Pradeep has been in the CEO, COO, CIO, and CTO roles at various insurance, technology, and healthcare companies over the last 35 plus years and has extensive expertise in blockchain, finance, technology, and healthcare. So quite a package. Pradeep was deeply involved in designing and building solutions for public programs in the U.S. and worked with the healthcare initiatives of both the Bush and Obama administrations. Prior to founding SelfCare, Pradeep built four healthcare IT companies. He has been at the top of Deloitte's Technology Fast 500 and similar lists multiple times. And according to Goldman Sachs, Pradeep is in the top 100 most promising entrepreneurs globally. Wow, Pradeep, I hope that I summarized your star CV and did it justice, at least closely or somewhat correctly. More than enough justice, Nina. And as I said, it, I am always embarrassed <laughs> when my bio is read out. I'm wondering, who is this guy? <laughs> you, no, you should not be. You, I mean, you are clearly on a mission to also revamp the world of healthcare, uh, including the back end of what is not seen by a patient from the research that I've done. So hence, then I had the aha moment of the solve care name. You have seen the ins and outs, or you must have, of the healthcare system in the US, which is a rabbit hole topic in itself. And now, as I understand, creating a globally accessible healthcare platform system of also fairness and inclusivity. So before we dive into self-care, Pradeep, tell us more about yourself and, and perhaps your journey in merging healthcare with Web3. So I've had the good fortune of working in healthcare since the beginning, right out of college. So more than 30 years, mm -hmm. 33 years now. And in the various roles as a healthcare technology executive, uh, working on public programs and helping write public policy and implement policy that affects the health of millions of people, literally, uh, being a parent and being a son, uh, you, I have, and working not just in the US, but with governments outside the US as well, mm -hmm. I really had the opportunity to look at healthcare from all angles clinical, administrative, financial, and public health. And that experience led to an epiphany, a recognition 
that there are common patterns of challenges, common patterns of solutions, and common failures of the solutions failing to deliver the value that they promise. Uh, and having been on both the buy side and the sell side of solutions and programs in healthcare, meaning I was both building solutions for healthcare and also using other people's healthcare solutions to try to address the needs of the population I was responsible for, I saw these patterns emerge. Uh, and at some point it became clear that if we are going to make a difference, we have to do things differently, which led to the creation of SolveCare. Mm -hmm. We are located in Europe, our, our podcast team, where the health system across countries is different compared to the U.S. Uh, I understand that you've spoken to different governments of different countries. So um, as you are obviously most likely familiar with, you know, Europe has a lot of the universal healthcare system versus the privatized systems that we see in the U.S. and, and some other countries. But I'm just this is just uh, sort of uh, tapping through what's what's the bigger picture. Could you maybe please first set a foundation in order to understand the differences globally, or is this even a factor uh, with with self care? So, what kind of health systems are out there, and what is the common framework that you see that you experience? It's a great question because optically healthcare looks different in different parts of the world and there are differences, but there are more similarities than there are differences. So let's really look at healthcare from a how it is operated worldwide and what are the common elements. When people talk about the differences, they really talk about how one of the three elements of healthcare are different, but there's always more similarities. What are the three fundamental elements of healthcare? First is how is care accessed? Meaning how is the delivery network set up? Uh, and we can talk about the differences between countries. In some countries you have uh, delivery networks designed by state, other countries you have one delivery network for the whole country like UK. So US and UK differ in how the delivery networks are designed. The second element of healthcare that's fundamental, similar to delivery networks is how is the payment system designed? Who pays whom, when, and how much? But the third and the most common element of healthcare is how is the data for healthcare administered, collected, aggregated, used, and consented for you, con consent for use. And these three elements of healthcare, three dimensions of healthcare, are fundamentally the same in all countries, but it's the confluence of these three that makes healthcare look different. So, you can say, well, in country A, let's say Canada, well, let's say uh, mostly a nationalized, socialized uh, medicine and all healthcare is under the control of the government. What that means is that you have one big delivery network and you have one central payer who's responsible for payments. And the data still is in question as to how the data is aggregated. Th those problems linger. In the US, we happen to have all these three dimensions of healthcare uh, particularly cordoned off. So you have very narrow delivery networks, you have very narrow payment networks, and you have very narrow data networks. And as a result, it's very challenging. But two out of these three problems exist practically everywhere. It's only a matter of which two problems exist. So when you come to Europe, there tends to be more consolidated delivery networks. But as you see over time, these networks always fail to, they have the same issues. If you have a very big one country-wide delivery network, then you have access problems. 
because you're trying to serve everybody with the same network. And then you end up with somebody making doing triage, somebody deciding who gets care first and who gets care later. Uh, so in that scenario, it may look like you have access to care, but you may not have access to specialty care on timely basis. And we see that all the time that both delivery networks, the very narrow ones and the very broad ones, suffer from one problem or the other. So if you look at very advanced uh, healthcare networks, like in Europe, I will not mention specific country names, but you can look up the data on OECD. In Europe, sometimes waiting for specialty care could be a 100-day wait. So primary care is easy because the primary care network is broad, but the specialty care networks don't work because there is a mismatch between demand and supply. If you go to US, the payment networks determine delivery, which is not a good thing. Uh, if you come to Asia, uh, payment is largely transactional. It's patient pays doctors. There is not as much third party payment like insurance companies or government or employer subsidies. But then you also have a huge problem with access because it's your zip code that determines quality of care and access to care. So what I'm trying to say in a simple sentence is that healthcare in every country ultimately relies upon how these three dials are adjusted, how the delivery network is configured, how the payment system is configured, and how the data access and aggregation is set up and who controls it. And in every country, these dials are set incorrectly. Um, so it's only a matter of recognizing these patterns and then saying, look, how do we make sure that in every country, in every geography, in every regulatory regime, we can optimize the setting of these three dials? Mm -hmm. Can you speak more of than you already alluding to it of what is broken? So in essence, um, I've heard you speak in, in, in previous podcasts, you speak of the siloed data problem with respect to, again, and this is, these are all the different actors that are involved. So hospitals, pharmacies, other key actors in the overall healthcare formula, which all essentially, as you have pointed out, functioned as separate businesses. Yet it's the patient who should be at the forefront with its data, right? To be kept discreet and private and et cetera. If, if I'm even tapping at this <laughs> correctly, if you could talk to this in terms of the silos that really caught my attention when you were speaking about that. Yeah. So as I said, there are really three fundamental silos of healthcare that determine outcome for every one of us and will continue to determine outcome for our kids. And that's the data silo, the delivery silo and the payment silo. So, okay. From all different bench. Yeah. The data silo is the most easily understandable because it touches us in a very visible way. Mm -hmm. So as a patient, I rely upon a team to deliver care. I need a primary care doctor. I need uh, oftentimes a lab net uh, facility. I need a diagnostic radiology, specialty care, maybe a nurse coordinator. Sometimes I have to visit a hospital facility. So each of these delivery entities has a copy or part of my data. We, I think we all understand that. And they don't have very much economic reason to share that data with each other unless they are forced by regulation but even then they are, they will share the data in a manner that's not most efficient and timely for my care to be optimized so the ideal scenario is that i as a patient have at least control over this data regardless of which entity generated that data for me but that aggregation has often been attempted by practically every government in the world by trying to force all these entities to talk to each other. 
And that's been the big fallacy for the last 50 years, is trying to get every healthcare institution and provider and stakeholder other than the patient to collaborate with each other to create this aggregated view of my health. But that doesn't work because there are business reasons, there are uh, functional and technical reasons why these entities don't talk to each other in an efficient, effective way. So inevitably then healthcare quality and healthcare cost suffers as a result. It is also impractical to think that all data can be in the hands of the patient or that the patient will have will become the source of all information up to date because what is happening if I'm admitted in the hospital, reams and reams of data will be generated about my stay. Some of it will be administrative, some will be financial, and some of it will be considered intellectual property of the hospital, which they're not going to want to reveal. So it's not likely that we are going to get all this data under my thumb as a patient, uh, because there are technical, functional, and regulatory and privacy reasons why you will never be the sole source. So really what we need is patient, we need a fabric on which the patient has visibility and control and consent over the data, which they don't have custody of, and they can give party B access to my data that is in the hands of party A and cause that data to move quickly, but I don't necessarily have to be this Uber data storage that people uh, that uh, that has every, all the pieces of information. So data silos are exist. They exist because of business silos. Every business that delivers healthcare to me in some way, shape, or form is going to maintain a copy of my identity and my clinical and my demographic information. It's about having the ability to move the data from A to B that the patient needs to have. So it's a very complex issue and it's often overly simplified by many companies saying, I'm going to just collect all the information and make you the patient or me the, the parent custodian of all health information. Well, that's not realistic. That It's not achievable, even if it was realistic and it won't function the way it's intended because the data being collected and produced by each of these healthcare stakeholders has many dimensions, some of which don't even apply to me per se as a patient. So long and short of it is, is that our view is to really address the data silo, you need a global framework on which any party can request and receive data from each other, and the consent to do so must come from me, the patient. I also, I imagine there's a magnitude of other respective complexities. You did allude to regulatory and I'm, I'm just sort of trying to wrap my head around how this works for different countries and how then self-care as a global platform of such a magnitude can step in and, and try to solve this. So in terms of regulatory and compliance and legal factors to consider for each country, then there are pricing models to develop. How are you going about with respect and in, in, in setting up such a global platform? I mean, what do you, what do you consider your biggest challenge just from a macro perspective? So we have taken a look at the, the global nature of the platform from day one. And when you think about healthcare in the context of a country, we are looking backwards, not forward. Most of healthcare in the past used to be geographically constrained. Your zip code determined the quality and the quantity of care you can access. 
and often it determined the, the outcome that you will experience, whether you will live long or short lives and whether you will have timely access to care or whether you will have delayed care. That's all a function of zip code. And that's why all countries try to regulate their healthcare in that context of geography. But as you look at a global pr platform, we have reimagined healthcare necessarily as transactions between two parties. And if you don't think of both parties being tied to a geography, but rather they can be anywhere, then you start to really understand that healthcare regulation is ultimately governing a relationship between two parties, A and B, patient doctor, doctor specialist, patient specialist, patient lab, lab doctor, lab specialist, specialist patient. These are relationships. And in the new world of healthcare, A can be in one geography, B can be in another. And that's really where an open global healthcare model ultimately will be. But even within the same country, you can be in different states where you can have different laws, you can be governed by different uh, rules. So the best way to build a global platform then is to build a relationship-based governance model where you can define a relationship between any two parties and you can then expand that relationship to from AB to AC and BC, which creates a triangle, or you can create an AB, BC, CD, DA relationship. You can create a as complex a relationship as you need to create to, to include all the parties who need to be part of a healthcare ecosystem. So when you design a platform like ours, you design it in the context of how do I govern and comply with the rules applicable to A and B. A could be me sitting in Hungary and B could be you, my doctor, sitting in Slovenia. Which rules apply? The answer is yes. Your rules in Slovenia as a physician apply to you. My rules as a patient resident in Hungary apply to me. And then we have to have a certain consent model to achieve between us so that I can transact with you where both of us accept each other's regulatory boundaries. So in our platform, the way we have built it, we have brought the regulation and compliance and configuration down to the relationships. That's why we call ourselves the health relationship management platform at the core of it all. Having achieved that, we can address both country-specific rules, we can create cross-border rules, we can deal with uh, digital health, we can deal with online telehealth and consultation rules, we can allow for second opinion between doctors sitting in different countries, we can allow purchase of prescription across international borders whenever such rules are permitted. So there is no healthcare model that cannot be configured ultimately down to an ABCDE framework, which is then configurable on the specific presence and geography of every actor on the chain. So yes, it's complex, but it's ultimately very simple because the moment we really define the problem correctly in healthcare, that there are two parties with respective rights and responsibilities choosing to interact with each other under proper consent, and as long as that consent is given by both sides correctly, and that the rules of relationship are enforced and agreed to on by both sides, ergo smart contracts that both of you and I will interact with to exchange data or to receive and pay a bill or to send and fill a prescription. All these transactions that we are familiar with in healthcare ultimately get bound to a relationship for which you can define the rules and therefore you can address regulatory concerns of any 
government or governments. And you can also implement the right payment system, whether you are within the same you know, payments uh, silo or you are breaking the silo and you're cutting across you know, three different uh, countries and you need different payment uh, models for each of the three participants. So we basically, in a nutshell, achieved compliance by breaking compliance down to the definition of a relationship and the rules of a relationship. I see. Um, and I promise to get to to the actual platform and the technicals. Sure. And, and thank you for that explanation. As a layperson, in terms of uh, healthcare, I sort of thinking, putting myself in the position of a patient. And you mentioned, okay, you're sitting in Hungary, I sit in Slovenia. I think that that relationship, if that would happen between the doctor and the patient, is probably much simpler to to do. My question that I keep thinking about is, in terms of adoption, is mm-hmm. the inclusivity factor. So I'm sure that you you think about this. But um, for example, you know, someone, how can someone from a lower cost of living country afford services from a doctor, a specialty provider, etc., that's sitting in a different country where the cost of living is higher, and ergo the pricing model may be higher and not accessible. To, to the lower cost of living country patient. Just in simpler terms, would someone from, um, let's say, I don't know, R- Romania would want a specialty doctor from the US where the healthcare system is much more expensive. How does that translate? That's a great question. I think there are three clear ways to look at this problem. First is that we need to give patient choice. Mm-hmm. The patient has to have the choice before they can choose. So in the context of ability to pay, if we give the patient no choice, then it doesn't matter what their ability to pay is. They're just bound to the local delivery network. So breaking down the care delivery silos and allowing me as a patient or as a parent of a child who needs health care, I need to have choices beyond what is geographically and, and uh, where my zip code is and where I happen to be. So that's the first thing. So you achieve that by breaking down care delivery silos and allowing physicians to practice with outside the boundary of the silos that are imposed upon them by insurance, by government, or by their their own uh, you know geography. So this is one. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. second is there is transparency. Yeah. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, no, I was unconstrained basically. Correct. If the physician can practice in a much, if not unconstrained, but in a much broader network or multiple networks where they can uh, practice, you know, three days a week in, in inside uh, their their current network and two days a week they can practice on a, on a much broader global network, then it creates that optionality for the patient and for the physician. The second part of this is affordability. So... Affordability is certainly an economic function, the ability of the patient to pay, but you have in there a couple of scenarios, whether it's patient's direct responsibility or there's a shared responsibility. So if you have direct responsibility, you're inevitably going to have the patient choose the best available care within the confines of what they can afford. But the more optionality we give them, the more choice of doctors or pharmacies or labs or specialty care consultation Uh, we give them, the more they'll be able to align their ability to pay with the best option on the table, right? But we obviously cannot force them to or should ever imply that they should try to get care from those who they cannot afford to buy care from. Same as I would not be able to afford a vehicle that I cannot afford, regardless of how many vehicles are in the market. But if I have a preponderance of choice 
to buy a vehicle in my price range, then I don't really necessarily have a disadvantage that harms me. Okay, I have five vehicles I can buy. Yes, I cannot buy 25 others because they are outside my price range, but there's plenty of choice in the five uh, or 10 vehicles that are in my price range. So you want to create that choice because we will never be able to afford everything we want in life, including the healthcare uh, being no exception to that. So this is point one. Point two is enabling the physicians to practice outside the silos allows physicians to decide how much they want to price based on the scenario. So I may, as a physician, may be highly respected and, and, and well um, uh, compensated in New York, but nothing stops me from offering two hours a month of my time at a much more discounted rate for certain relationships that I want to create. For example, I want to, um, to support children who have certain types of diseases that I specialize in. So I'm a pediatric oncologist and my job is to support. Of course, I'm getting very well paid, but I also want to spend two hours a month on supporting children with cancer in disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged or regionally disadvantaged countries and locations. So it gives physicians the ability to decide when their services are economically fair market value and when their services are, uh, are more aligned with the need rather than with the ability to pay. Then you have the third element, which is the, uh, the subsidy element. So you have government typically subsidizing care. You have um, societies doing a care subsidy for those who can't afford it in many different ways. You have employer paid insurance and employer paid health care. You have government paid health care. You have community uh, funded health care. But none of these are today able to really effectively work uh, because they are all bound to one silo, or either the care delivery silo or the geographical silo. So on a platform like ours, you would be able to draw upon a larger view of who deserves what subsidy and to be able to tap into subsidy and, and support resources to fund care. So in some ways, you can look at it as the more transparent a need we have, the more transparent a delivery network we have, more transparent, it, it be, easier it becomes for somebody to step in and say, let me help pay for part or all of the care of this particular relationship. Um, but there is no single answer. Ultimately, care needs to be delivered, care needs to be paid for, and you only have three choices. Either you buy the care that you can afford, but you have a, plenty of good choices to of good care at the price you can afford, or you can align the, the payment, the, the price of the care to the ability to pay by uh, making the need and the delivery networks interact with each other much more transparently. And then you can also have more efficient subsidy and cost sharing uh, by third parties. And that combination is how healthcare works today. Today, healthcare works exactly like that, but it works in very narrow silos which brings you back to the zip code, that if you're lucky enough to be in a zip code where you have good access to a choice of physicians at all price ranges, you can always find a physician at your price range, you have good subsidized uh, support from community or government or insurance or employer, well, you're gonna be okay, but you're in the minority. The majority doesn't have those good options. And our job is to expand that optionality of care, optionality of choice, and and optionality of cost sharing to everyone. Everyone will experience healthcare differently, but they'll all experience healthcare better than they experience today. Right, right, right. And that it's accessible and you have choice. Correct. Great. So 
let's talk about the technical and the tech side of self-care and how you're going about solving this and setting this up. So defining the technicals. You are stating on your page or webpage that, that it's a blockchain-based platform. And just to set the stage for, for my audience, that's, uh, that, that's, a, that's an eclectic audience in understanding uh, Web3. Is this a DAP? Is this a blockchain? Or both? Or more than both? It's a great question. So the answer is yes, uh, but let me break it down for you. Yes, for the I, mean, audience. I know it's blockchain based. Yes, but, but I'll take. I'll give you the ball to run with it. So I'll I'll, I'll um, provide you a brief answer, then we can dig into it. Yes. So we are a complete platform which was built from the ground up to address the healthcare relationship, healthcare transaction, healthcare data, and healthcare payments. And to achieve that, we had to take the comprehensive view of what would it take for a consumer and an institution to successfully use our platform to deliver better care with better outcomes at lower cost and with the greater provider and efficiency and a better patient experience. That's a mouthful, but those are the basics. And this is sometimes referred to as quadruple aim in healthcare. A better patient experience, uh, much more efficient provider uh, time utilization and, uh, and less with less friction, low, high, great value for money being spent on care and better outcomes. So experience, efficiency, value, and outcomes. Those are your four goals. And many governments, you know, recently Saudi Arabia launched their 2030 vision, you know, speaks to the same four goals. Uh, the U.S. has been pursuing the same four goals in the, uh, they call it quadruple aim. Every government, every society is pursuing these four goals. So we decided that everybody seems to be doing this in an inefficient way. And how about we build a platform that truly makes the quadruple aim possible? Now, that's a bold and audacious vision, but I've spent three decades trying to achieve this goal and seeing what doesn't work. So it all kind of came together that this goal is actually achievable if we build an open architecture platform that everyone can trust without having to trust the company that built it. So therefore, blockchain comes into play. Blockchain gives us a trustless trust layer, which essentially means that the chain can be trusted to function the way it is designed and independently hosted and verified by anybody and everybody who wants to, to build solutions on the chain. And you are guaranteed the chain's ideological and functional independence and accuracy. And you're not relying upon something that SolveCare can or cannot do or will or will not do for the chain to function the way it's designed because everything is transparent. The logic is transparent. The nodes are independently run and verified and the chain cannot be modified. It's immutable. So it can only be written to. It cannot be altered. So that gives us the foundation of trust. But that's not enough. The chain in itself is just one layer of the whole stack. You need something that, that the patients and the providers can interact with, the user experience layer. It needs to be personalizable. So we built the care wallet. We can talk about that a little bit later, but it's the application which allows you to interact with the chain in a human and humane way and makes it healthcare compliant and relevant. We built then dApps that run in the care wallet called care cards. And these dApps can solve any business or clinical problem that you have because it's up to you to design the dApp in the form of a card. But we organized the cards in such a way 
that they are very humanly understandable and they're very easy to configure and the co you can connect the cards with each other to solve very, very complex care coordination, care delivery and uh, care payments and care administration processes. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to uh, manage a complex diabetic with a team of six different specialty care providers or you are simply trying to get a premium payment done or you are trying to enroll somebody in a new program you're trying to check their eligibility to see if they qualify all these business processes can be no can be reduced down to a deck of cards and those cards are relatively quick and easy to configure but these cards are d apps which means that they then operate on the chain and manifest themselves in the wallet and then below that wallet and card concept, we built an entire application platform which allows you to define the relationship between parties and to implement the consent of the parties to engage in that relationship. So this is where I go back to the AB relationship or the ABC or the ABCD relationship. Uh, a being a patient, B being a doctor, C being a specialist, D being a lab, and E being, let's say, a pharmacy. Very simple ABCD network. But today to do that is a very complex, almost impossible uh, equation on the platform, on software platform. It just becomes five different configurations that you can set up within days, define each relationship, define the D apps between those relationships, and you can replace incredibly complex and difficult to maintain an expensive IT infrastructure that you might have today with something that will run way more efficiently at a fraction of the cost. So that's the the platform uh, in a nutshell but powering all this is the blockchain and we just recently released uh, our layer 2 chain built specifically for healthcare to power these healthcare transactions and to facilitate these healthcare relationships and we found that blockchain in its native form does not rise to the occasion of serving healthcare so we basically built a layer two chain on top of a native blockchain, Ethereum, which is purpose-built to, to manage roles, relationships, consent, uh, data privacy, and identity privacy using zero-knowledge proof and things like that. These are technological concepts that protect the identity of both sides of the relationship, A and B. It allows them to form relationships with each other without having to disclose their entire identity. I shouldn't have to tell the doctor the name of my children to be able to share with them that I have a severe headache for the last three days. And perhaps my age, my gender, my clinical you know, history and risks are relevant, but the name of my dog isn't. So in that regard, we have implemented the technology in the blockchain that allows both parties to transact with each other with the appropriate and necessary exchange of information but not excessive and, and, uh, and uh, risk creation that often goes into healthcare. So this is a very deep platform. Of course, we, we can spend more time on it, but in the interest of audience and their ability to comprehend something so uh, deep, you have a, on the top layer, you have this user experience layer called the Care Wallet, which executes the D apps called Care Cards. And at the bottom, you have the chain where you transact in a secure uh, and transparent way with each other. And in between you have the relationship management, transaction management, identity management, and data management layers. And the whole stack functions to essentially give anybody, institution, physician, pharmacy lab, insurance company, government agency, to implement 
a completely fair, equitable, inclusive model of healthcare um, around any population that you're interested in serving. Um, you you speak of L two your L, your own L two or care chain. What kind? I know it's different, and that you've tailored it to your to, to the healthcare needs. But how how is it fundamentally then different from other L twos, for example, like other public L twos? Are you if you're able to answer that question? Absolutely. So yes, we are a public L two as well. And our vision is that our care chain as a layer two chain is available not just to solve care, but also to any healthcare innovator entity. Uh, individual who wants to build compelling new solutions for healthcare, but they can rely upon our chain to deliver very fundamental capabilities so they can just go ahead and focus on their business value creation. So we design care chain to be a healthcare centric. It's a purpose built chain for healthcare. So what does that mean? So specifically, there are three or four things I'll bring to your attention why we needed to build it. So the, the first is that the healthcare transactions typically have a requirement for both sides having clearly defined role and both sides having the uh, a set of rules that govern their relationship and their ability to give explicit consent before they engage in any transaction with each other. So let's say you are the doctor, I'm the patient, and before I before we sign up, uh, and you start delivering care to me, you are probably going to want me to agree to your rate sheet, and I'm going to probably want to give you consent to look at my medical data uh, under, if you are in the US, it would be HIPAA. If it's in you uh, in Europe, you would be bound to the rules similar to GDPR. We, I would have to give you that consent to hold my data. Uh, I would have to agree to the fact that once I share the data with you, it becomes part of your medical record, and I cannot ask that data to be expunged because it's part of your practice data and it cannot be deleted at my whim. So those kind of rules of relationship can be defined on the platform using care protocol. And these rules get quite complex quite fast and we made it easy for these complex rules to be defined in the care protocol, which works with the care chain. So you have this whole notion of rules, relationships and rules of engagement that needs to be built into the chain, but it goes well beyond and you need smart contracts to do this, but it's simple smart contracts can't achieve it. So layer two chain that we built allows a definition of healthcare roles and relationships and the rules and consent inherently in the chain. So application level doesn't need to worry about it. You simply call the chain, the chain will manage that for you. The second part of this, which is unique to us, is that healthcare is a competency-based sector. You can talk to your friends and seek advice from them, but if you're seeking, if you're reading content or if you are receiving care or if you are uh, billing someone and receiving payment for that care, there is a competency element that needs to be there. I can't just claim to be a doctor and become a doctor. I have to have medical degree. I have to have certain continuing education. I need to have certain specialty uh, training if I claim to be an oncologist and so on. Similarly, if I'm uh, someone who is uh, providing diet advice or if I'm a nutritionist, I need to have certain degree of competency to speak. That, so you cannot use Instagram influencer model where if enough people like me, my, uh, my opinion carries a lot of weight. Because in healthcare, no matter how many people like me, if I'm not a competent doctor, I shouldn't be serving you, right? So we built a concept of uh, a consensus mechanism in the care chain called proof of competence. 
And what that means is that every role has either a known or um, a known competence or not. And if there is not enough competence linked to an actor on the chain, they cannot perform certain functions. For example, you will not be able to, to provide paid care to a patient if you don't have proof of competency of being a clinician with certif certified, board certified education and, and license in the country where you practice. So the proof of competence works for all actors in the chain. If you're a validator, you need to have proof of competence to show that you can handle healthcare data. If you are a reviewer, you need to show proof of competence to, uh, to you need to have a proof of competence NFT in your wallet that tells us that you actually have the ability to review this content mm. that you are reviewing. If you're a publisher of content or care service, or you need to have the proof of competence to say, I have the right to deliver this service and so on. And this proof of competence serves both as a consensus mechanism on the chain, which makes the which replaces the proof of uh, proof of stake and proof of work. It makes this chain a good actor chain, meaning pretend doctors cannot practice on the chain. Um, and it also allows every stakeholder to know that there is a certain degree of transparency around zero knowledge proof of competence, which means that I can verify that you're a doctor without knowing your name, and I can agree to transact with you. Uh, and agree to the rules of transaction, and then we will uh, actually transact with each other. But I don't need to know everything about you to know that you are a competent doctor. All I need to do is to ask the chain, is Nina a doctor? And the chain will say, based on proof of competence, she is. And based on the review score she has, she's a good one. So those are the principles that we have built into the care chain. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we had to do, which is really important, is that healthcare payments aren't same as e-commerce payments. You know, we are all used to going into a store or going online, choosing an object or a product, paying for it and receiving that product and we're done. It's an A-B transaction, very simple. You have something you are willing to sell to me, I have the ability to pay, I pay you, you send it to me. And the most complexity there is tying the payment to perhaps delivery of the product and that's it. Now in healthcare, the payment is actually made for not just a service, but for a care episode. So you will have every healthcare um, interaction is really part of a healthcare episode. So whether it's a short episode or a longer episode, healthcare is delivered in episodes. And for episode, sometimes and often, you don't even know the, the payment for the whole episode. You don't know how much it's gonna cost by the time the episode, the care episode is over. So healthcare payments are typically long running, meaning they have many phases. They typically involve multiple parties and they typically require some kind of an arbitration or a negotiation, if you will, to arrive at the final value of the service at the end, okay? So to do that, it's not possible to deliver healthcare payments by just having a token that I move from my wallet to your wallet. You need to have the ability to program this token. You need to have the ability to link the token to either the episode being properly followed and completed, and ideally even to the result of the episode, right? You would want to actually pay the doctor more or you want to pay the do doctor um, to keep you healthy or to get you healthy. But just to pay for the interaction is not the optimal outcome we are looking for. We're looking for, yes, the doctor should get paid for the episode. And if they interacted with you seven times in that episode, then it should add up to the right payment. But at the same time, we should also look at, did you actually benefit from the care, which is what's called value-based care. And it's becoming very prevalent all over the world. 
So long and short of it is we had to build a specialized payment capability called Solve Token, which is programmable, which is can be linked to both the episode and the outcome, one or the, uh, the other or both, and which can also lead to cost subsidy in the form of insurance company paying part of the bill or employer paying part of the bill or government paying some or all the bill and the ability to do arbitration uh, because the doctor fees are not necessarily set 100% by the doctor. They're also set by other parties who have the right to govern uh, care. So these are complexities of healthcare that cannot be solved in, in normal blockchain. So we built that payment capability into the chain and into the token, which solves a huge problem in healthcare, by the way, because it's very inefficient to, to do healthcare payments without a capability like care chain. And there are many other differences, but I highlighted the three big ones for you. Uh, why we needed to build a layer two chain for healthcare. So just if I understand correctly, and summarizing a bit, it's you developed a public L2. So essentially, essentially permissionless, but because I'm, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit because it's not proof of work, it's not proof of stake, but also sort of permissioned because of the proof of competency factor. It's not just anybody can be a validator as you're saying, the validators have to also have competency in terms of or be linked to the healthcare knowledge system or in, in terms of being able to, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm circling in, in this proof of competency a little bit. If you can perhaps maybe shed a little more light on that. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand then who are the validators and how can they onboard? It's a great question. So th a proof of competence is derived from proof of authority, which is a well understood consensus mechanism in blockchain. Mm -hmm. Most of us, uh, and so let me answer that with, with one sentence, but I want, because you asked some great questions in that same sentence. The second is the, the proof of competence required for validators varies. There are different types of validator nodes. Uh, there's soft node, there's hard node, and there's light node, and they, these nodes have different capacity. For instance, the hard node, you can host both on-chain node, which is typical blockchain node, and you can also have the off-chain uh, data layer on the hard node. If you want to be a validator for a hard node, then you need to have certain competency in terms of securing healthcare data because the off-chain data can be quite sensitive. But if you're only running a soft node where there is no off-chain data, then the proof of competency requirements are lower. Yes. But at the same time, because we want the chain to be trusted by every single participant, doctor, patient, lab, pharmacy, government, you and I, the, you still need to have proof of competency because we wouldn't want bad actors whose only purpose is to hack this data, to steal, to try to, to break into the node and try to manipulate the node. Similar to how you have proof of stake. Why do you need to deposit 30 to Ethereum to become a Ethereum validator? What is the stake? What are you staking for? You're staking for, you're putting something on the line so that if you behave badly, if you try to damage the chain, if you try to, to act in a bad way, then you run the risk of losing substantial money, right? So proof of stake basically says that if you behave poorly as a validator, you're going to get kicked off the chain and you will lose your money. Well, in healthcare, we decided that money is not enough of a deterrent. That's not really what we want to deter by selling people you will lose 32 Ethereum. 
We want to say you need to have a reason to be a validator on the chain by demonstrating your competence and your involvement in healthcare today. So that brings us to the next question. Who are the validators? So validators are currently pharmacies, labs, radiology centers, uh, doctor's clinics, insurance companies, um, government agencies that are running public health programs, dentists, optometrists, people who are currently in one way or the other involved in the healthcare sector and are responsible actors in healthcare sector. And there are thousands of them, tens of thousands, millions of them. So the notion here is that the proof of competency we are looking for is someone who is competent healthcare stakeholder today. And if you are, then you can become a validator and you can both transact and earn on your nodes. And we allow for a lot of additional value to the validators in terms of transacting on the chain. So they can not only validate other people's events, they also have significant ability to run their own business on the chain, right? So what better way for us to attract good actors uh, than by delivering good value to them? Now, there are other node types, just to round it out, where you may not be able to validate anything, but you can read, and for that, competency requirements are different. But end of the day, we are looking for people to, for this, for care chain to be globally available, globally dispersed, and fast and cheap to transact on by engaging the global healthcare community. I understand. Would you be able to clarify what parts of the platform are potentially centralized, if any, and which parts are decentralized? So fundamentally, the platform is designed to be decentralized from in terms of data, identity, transaction, relationship, mm -hmm. contracts, smart contracts. So uh, there is really, we don't see any centralization as acceptable because the moment we centralize anything in the platform, then SolveCare becomes an entity that has undue amount of power. And you would have to trust SolveCare to trust the chain. And that's absolutely the opposite of our goal. So everything in the stack is meant to be, and, and we are always looking for any centralization to creep in, but the care chain is fully decentralized, open permissionless chain. But for certain roles on the chain, as we discussed, you have to ach achieve proof of competence, but that in itself is achieved in a decentralized way. Identity is decentralized, data is never aggregated, all the data sits in the individual wallet or the metadata sits on the event ledger on the chain, but we do not have any ability to look at or aggregate or analyze information that flows between A and B. The relationship is private, okay? Now, where the centralization occurs is the operations of the company. So we are like every other business, you know, uh, have marketing and sales and the business development and uh, education team and uh, support organization. And all those functions are run like a normal corporation. But we have a very clear line between how SolveCare as a company functions and how the platform functions. And even, um, so that's really where the line is. Um, and our goal is to open up the platform increasingly more to where not just the blockchain is open, but we are uh, starting to open up the layers above it uh, in a manner that others can derive and build upon it. 
But the the foundation of the platform is the layer two chain, and that's a open app, uh, project like any other layer two chain. And I think we are probably a bit more open or a lot more open than others because we find that a lot of the open projects lack the necessary documentation. So we are really putting a focus on the documenting care chain. Is is your code open source? Because I, I couldn't find any uh, in the GitHub repos in terms of indications. So we are... So the, the the care chain code will be published on GitHub mm-hmm. uh, in its entirety uh, once we have documented it properly. I see. We ourselves relied upon a number of excellent open source projects to build the care chain because care chain is ultimately, I call it, we are standing on the shoulder of giants. We looked at all the good projects in the market. We studied their technology and their principles and not many met our standard, but those who did we learned from them and we assembled a lot of our principles from looking at other good accomplishments in uh, layer two chains. So CareChain is in many ways a, is the best of breed chain by looking at what others have done well. And plus we've done a lot to it to make it healthcare friendly, healthcare relevant. And our goal is to publish that in a properly documented format. So our, so our objective is by end of the year to have a well-documented GitHub repository for CareChain. I see. Well, you're you're saying all the right uh, <laughs> Web three ethos <laughs> terms. It's uh, it's commendable that um, you've studied the technology uh, in order to, or you've sounds like you've done your due diligence. Uh, bottom line, that you know what to utilize and what to run with going forward. I have a, a, few, a few more questions about the Solve token. Where did you deploy it? On, on which blockchain? So our layer two chain is built on Ethereum. Right. Okay. So Ethereum. Yeah. And Solve runs on our layer two. So Solve is a native token of care chain. Similar to Matic is on Polygon. Right. right. And others um, similar constructs. So Solve is the gas token and performs many other functions on layer two chain. But Solve also exists on layer one as an ERC-20 token. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to just a few questions about, you talked about the mobile app wallet. Mm-hmm. Do patients hold their tokens or is it meant for patients to hold their tokens in the mobile wallet app as well? Yes. So the patients and providers and any other A, B, C, D or E entity in the example I used, every entity that interacts with the chain uses the wallet. The wallet contains the keys to manage their data, their identity, their assets, digital assets, tokens, as well as their relationships with other parties and their eligibility to connect to various care networks uh, on the the chain. So the wallet is your one stop through which you interface with the chain from a human perspective, from a relationship perspective, from controlling your assets, from sharing your data, and from accessing all the services. And you do that by having the right set of cards in your wallet. So the answer to your question is absolutely correct. The wallet controls your assets. That's how you store and receive and transfer and share uh, your digital assets. But if you expand the definition of digital asset from token to data, identity, and relationship, all these token types are controlled right from the wallet. Obviously, and you've alluded to this several times, there's confidential medical documents, right, being exchanged between doctors and patients and, um, and so forth. How did you solve the storage issue in terms of 
Are you, use, are you using a decentralized storage or are you hosting a centralized database in terms of where all this data is stored? Yeah, so healthcare data, you need to think of it in nuances or rather in tiers, like a cake, layers of data. Mm. So you have different types of data that needs to be handled differently. But what is common across all the data is that there is, for each data element in healthcare, there is someone who has the right to that data and someone who might have custody to that data and they're not always the same. So you need to manage healthcare data by understanding that custody is not ownership and ownership should not be lost when you lose custody. So we have designed this healthcare data management in CareChain with very clear understanding of the difference between data custody, data ownership, and the consent for use. Having said that, there are four or five fundamental uh, approaches to the data handling, which I'll quickly summarize. So the first is that there is on-chain data and off-chain data. Um, so on-chain data can be data about the data, typically. So events can be stored on the chain. The originating wallet and the receiving wallet ID can be stored on the chain by the owner of the wallet identity of the owners of the wallet or the payload of that event, which contains, let's say, my X-ray or my MRI or my past medical history would not be on-chain. That would be linked to an off-chain. And the on-chain and off-chain data work in concert. And neither can be modified without the other knowing about it. So you basically have, think of it as a, you know, if you have a, if you play poker, you have the visible side of the card and the invisible side of the card, and you, you have the ability to store the public side of the card on the chain and the private side of the card gets stored off chain, but they work hand in hand. The second element is how is data moved? So we allow for, on the care chain, a peer-to-peer -peer permissionless exchange of data between two wallets, A and B, as long as they are in a relationship. So that peer-to-peer -peer exchange of data allows no intermediary to take a look at it. So I can send you a card from my wallet, and that card can carry whatever content I want you to see, and I can further give you access to that side, the right side of the card or both sides of the card, and I can choose the duration of the card. So that goes to consent and control over data. Just because I sent you my card and therefore you are in custody of my card doesn't mean that I, I lost ownership over that card. So we allow this extended chain of custody of data, which is very powerful but essential to healthcare. And I don't know of any other industry that goes to such extreme as we do in healthcare to protect the chain of custody, to establish and manage a chain of custody to protect the data. Then you have geopinning and geofencing. So especially when it comes to off-chain data, because blockchain by definition is decentralized, distributed, and, and has no boundaries, but off-chain data can be geopinned uh, and geofenced. So if you are, let's say, a government agency, again, let's use Saudi Arabia as an example, they've been talking to, to solve about building a national health program. And they, one of their requirement is that the patient identity and patient data cannot leave the Saudi uh, geographic boundaries. Well, in that case, you can stand up enough validator nodes, which are off-chain data enabled, and you can pin the data to those nodes. Uh, so physically, the only the Saudi uh, lo local nodes would host the off-chain data, but the chain itself is global. You can't geofence the chain, but you can geofence the off-chain data nodes, and then you can limit access to those 
data to only wallets which have the keys to Saudi data, which would be me as a patient or me as a parent. So that's uh, built in to the chain. And then finally, you have zero knowledge proof to be able to verify the role and the competency of the other side. So if I'm A and I want to interact with B, I have the ability to, re to request and receive verification that the other side is a doctor. And not only is that person a doctor, but they're actually based in Hungary. Uh, those kind of zero knowledge uh, proofs are built in. So therefore, I can build relationships with only those wallets that are permitted or that I want. So the combined effect of these basic principles of off-chain and on-chain data, extended chain of custody, permissionless peer-to-peer uh, encrypted ex uh, exchange of data between wallets, the ability to geofence off-chain data, and the ability to access data and relationships with zero-knowledge proof, address any healthcare regulation and data privacy rules that exist. In fact, we exceed mm -hmm. you know, things like HIPAA and GDPR and HITECH and HITRUST. These things are trying to do things you know, in a in a more traditional Web two model, and our model, which is much more Web three and blockchain oriented, exceeds the uh, the current capabilities of uh, uh, and the intent of these regulations. So we are quite confident that the way we have designed the data handling exceeds any current IT capability on uh, outside of Carechain. Sounds like it. Um what what parts now of the self-care solutions are up and running? So we launched the first version of the platform in 2018 and we started, right. our clients started using it uh, back uh, since then. And a number of networks have been designed and launched on our platform. The, the part that's the most recent, which was only a few weeks ago, is that we announced that we are injecting a layer two chain as the bottom layer of the platform. So in, in effect, lifting that platform from Ethereum and inserting a layer two chain between the platform and the, and the Ethereum layer, which has given us a lot of additional and new functionality. Mm -hmm. And the, the value proposition is that now you can handle much more complex roles, relationships and transactions uh, in the wallet uh, at faster, cheaper, and certainly more powerful capabilities. And the most important thing being that we have expanded the smart contract limitations. We have overcome the smart contract limitations, which uh, are slow and, ex and expensive to run by building our own care event virtual machine, which allows for much faster execution of events at a much lower cost while being EVM compatible. It lets you actually write your business logic or your relationship logic in any uh, in multiple languages, not just the solidity. So we basically abstracted the smart contract layer with a care event virtual machine, which is much more powerful and more efficient. So with these functionalities being added to the platform, we can now build a lot more uh, solutions or our clients can build a lot more solutions, uh, more complex and more powerful at a much faster time to market. So long and short of it is that while the platform has been in production since 18, it's evolving rapidly. And we think that with KHN, it is taking the final step towards being a global framework as I originally envisioned it, open, tr trusted, trustless framework that everyone in the world can use to address their own healthcare delivery and management issues. Yes. And 
I mean, self-care is a project of enormous and, and complex magnitude. How, how big is your team now? How many developers do you have? So the overall team size has been pretty steady for the last uh, six years. It's, we are always around 100, 120 people total. And it's um, it's been constant and steady. And, and uh, the But we have a big community mm-hmm. in addition to the team, which contributes to the platform, to designing and launching networks. And we are now increasingly focused on signing partnerships with crypto, blockchain, health tech, fintech, insure tech companies who see value in our platform being uh, utilized in their in the whatever dimension of healthcare they are serving. Um, so we have the, the community, we have the partnerships, and we have our core team that's been working on, on the platform and continues to develop it every single day. But the biggest point here is that our our with the launch of CareChain and with the launch of Care Labs last year, we are really saying that the physicians themselves can author care cards by making the process non-technical and actually joyful and enjoyable. And we're starting to see physicians start to author the apps because they just need to describe their business process in the labs and the labs does most of the work for them. So we have been really focused on bringing the clinical and the care coordination universe of healthcare. There are hundreds of millions of people who are involved in delivery of care who are struggling with how do I deliver better care to my patients? We are pulling them into uh, into being active users and publishers on the chain. Whether you're a content publisher in the sense that you're a great endocrinologist and you want to publish how to manage diabetes or avoid risk of diabetes or you're a nutritionist or a fitness expert or sleep specialist, all these people are now becoming prolific um, content publishers on the chain. And that's really my vision because in the end, if you look at it in a very simple sense, you know, there are 7 billion people on the planet, 5 billion out of the 7 will will develop one or more of the top 10 chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, COPD, asthma, what a renal failure, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which means 5 billion people will suffer from and ultimately pass from these diseases. And these diseases are well understood. And yet there is huge disparity in how people understand them, how they manage them, how they are treated, and how effectively they manage these diseases and do they lead to early death or not. And in this day and age, with with all the internet and all the Google and everything else we have, this disparity exists and and continues to thrive because healthcare isn't just about, you can't just Google your way to good health. You need to have competent advice at the right time, advice that you can trust and and, uh, convert into actions and it's almost always an episodic model of care. So my vision is that we are at a point where self-care itself should focus on delivering the the competent content for these top 10 diseases to every corner of earth. So you have a choice of going on the chain and understanding your care options, understanding your disease state and understanding how to manage it and not having a significant disadvantage of not living in New York City or in Berlin or in, you know, in the capital of Slovenia. You should be able to take better care of yourself and your family regardless of where you live, which ultimately is what we are focused on. Yeah, you're talking about the competence, the, the publishing. Is this what you refer to as the the smart NFTs, the care F- NFTs? Yes. Right. I, I do actually, I, I've thought a lot about that, and I think it's a great, great tool to 
as you mentioned also, to monetize competency by publishing or authoring different forms of knowledge. And of course, as well, I mean, the patient is number one, right? So to help the patients. My concern is who decides there, you know, there's so much today. We were sort of like this, in this information war, right? People don't know who to trust, who to believe, where to go for information. Who decides? I mean, I, mean, I know the doctor has quite an extensive education path behind, but who decides who makes it as a knowledge publisher? In other words, is there a curator also of the content? You know, is there like a, I don't know, pseudo. Cochrane Institute of, uh, you know, curation of this of this content in terms of who makes it in, into this NFT publishing. Yeah, it's a really good question. So now because we are looking at proof of competency first from a publisher perspective, and then there is proof of competency from a reviewer perspective, mm-hmm. and then there is the, uh, the when you combine those two, and then of course then you have the user reviews as well, but those are not as reliable from a clinical sense. Mm-hmm. So the notion is that a competent and a publisher of NFT has to have minimum number of competent reviews of the NFT as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And depending upon the competency, the number of reviewers that are needed for that NFT to be deemed competent enough to be published uh, varies. So for simple matters, you might need only three competent reviewers to say, yes, I can concur, This is these are best practices. And for more complex cases, you might need 10 of them. Uh, And it also depends on whether you need different competencies. If I'm publishing something related to, let's say, arterial hypertension, which is a unique form of hypertension, and there are less than a thousand doctors worldwide who are trained in arterial hypertension, then yes, you're going to need, you know, a minimum of three or five arterial hypertension competence reviewers to say yes this this is the right care model when you develop it so that's uh, that's the the model that the publisher has to seek has to receive re- positive reviews from other competent reviewers there are other mechanisms that we plan to introduce to further verify the content and that would come from doing uh, certainly the patients or the users of the nft can comment on it and uh, they will also uh, in, uh, be working on models where the um, we will start to link outcomes to the NFT to see if the NFT is producing the desired outcome. You know, if 100 users of a how to manage your weight NFT report that I actually gained weight, uh, that's going to factor into over time the uh, the efficacy of that NFT as well. Mm-hmm. But in the real sense, this is how the medical profession works. We are emulating the best practices of medical profession. Doctors have different opinions of how something should be treated, but they are bound by certain guidelines published by associations or competent brokers of uh, care models. So you might say uh, that Korean Diabetes Association publishes the guidelines on how to manage diabetes. But it is not so specific as to be applicable to you or I. That's the job of the doctor to take those guidelines and modify them to um, your and my individual context. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to emulate that same exact thing in the NFT, where the care NFT is not just static content, it's multidimensional content. And a physician can write the NFT in a way that the same NFT in your wallet will look slightly different than my wallet based on gender or that NFT might look different in my wallet based on age difference. So our NF smart, the reason they are smart NFTs and not just static NFTs is because 
the care wallet when it when it visualizes the care nft actually takes into account the wallet holders clinical profile and spins the nft to show the right side of the nft so you can actually create as a physician gender-based care models age-based care models and you can generate even condition and disease and and uh, other clinical factor-based models and you can wrap them into an nft so it's it's really about putting your competence into the NFT, not like writing a you know PDF or putting a blog. That's not relevant to me as a human being because it's not personalized. So we see care NFTs as personalized care content right. written by a competent authority, reviewed by competent reviewers. And then as the NFTs proliferate, we will then build a, we are building a feedback loop. It'll, it'll start to show its impact by seeing if the impact of the NFT on the patient was indeed directionally correct, right? Uh, of course, patient has a responsibility and all those factors kick in, but end of the day, we will be able to measure if the NFT is not just content-wise effective, is it also functionally achieving its set goals, which is how healthcare is measured all the time anyway. Right, right. I mean, I just find this a, a fantastic use case for an NFT in terms of content, knowledge, publishing. I mean, I can't think of a better way to use that. And where, so where are you now? I mean, as, as we wrap this up, Pradeep, this has been such a deep dive. Um, I, I have so many more questions. You know, I, I feel like I, we just got into the rabbit hole. Where are you now with respect to the adoption process of all these different components that you're talking about? So we are seeing, we have a significant pipeline of institutional clients as well as clinicians who are either authoring dApps on our platform or authoring care NFTs. And there is a significant, there can be significant overlap between them uh, because you can actually publish care NFTs to function like dApps if you want, uh, which means that your NFT will, in the care wallet, actually behave like a dApp. But besides that, we are we have a lot of clinical publishers already working. We have a, a fantastic physician currently writing NFTs on uh, sleep management and mm -hmm. sleep apnea. And another one is working on uh, what's the right non-diet-based weight management model. And the other one is working on cardiology, care, care, uh, heart care for those who have hypertension and so on. And then we have institutions who are building care networks on our platform, and there is a quite a long list of them, uh, ranging from cardiology care, diabetes care, to integrated medicine, traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, and so there's a, and this is exciting because it's all about giving the patient choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the more networks we launch or, or health institutions launch, the more choice a patient has, the better care outcomes we're gonna see and lower costs we're gonna see worldwide. So those things are happening in bulk. And where we are focused on today is really supporting and training and, and helping these institutions and clinicians author. So we have stood up a dedicated department in the company which only works with uh, people trying to, helping um, clinicians and institutions and, and patients and pharmacists to author their dApps or author their care NFTs. So that's where our big focus is because the tech is largely where I wanted it to be. I think, not I think, our goal is by end of this year, we would be able to say to ourselves that the vision I laid out in the white paper in 2017 has been materially met. And now we are in a enhancement, improvement, optimization mode, but we have 
we have achieved that goal of building a global open architected platform for humanity in terms of healthcare. Now let's get it adopted. So adoption, we call 2023 the year of adoption, where we are focused on helping as many institutions, uh, healthcare, insurance, government, uh, even revenue cycle management, pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies to author their networks. So that's where the focus is. Uh, while we continue to, of course, enhance the platform. Yeah, that was one of my questions. What was the rest of your 2023 roadmap looking like? Uh, I know that you mentioned in terms of the blockchain and, and, and getting everything written and published and, and, and etc. But I imagine adoption and utility are high on the list. So that's a really as you're moving forward. Insightful question, because adoption in healthcare is challenging. And if you really look at it, why? Because I, I'm, of course, was a buyer of big health tech systems and I wrote pretty big checks you know, it was not uncommon for me to sign off on a $100 million eligibility system or $200 million, you know, payment system. And this is the right side of checks you write as a CIO uh, of insurance or public health programs. But there are f the, the problem that we have with tech adoption, particularly when it's facing the patient, the first is the cost. Health tech is, is way more expensive than any other tech sector because of um, the data handling requirements, because of the sensitivity to do no harm principles. Mm. Then you have a significant risk. Every time you bring a new solution to market, we have to make sure as a responsible you know, uh, stakeholder that this solution has clinical validity, that this solution does not do any harm to the patient, and that we are not uh, introducing a, uh, uh, you know, we're not excluding a population inadvertently by making the tech too hard. Mm -hmm. Then you have compliance issues, which are, you know, am I compliant with regulation that sometimes is written with a different view of technology than exists today? So, you know, the, sometimes the compliance rules are written in the context of paper forms and you are in, an, in a digital world. So how do you achieve compliance while meeting the, the, do you try to meet the spirit of the law or the letter of the law? And then you have the time to market. I have in many times in my career, you know, signed off on a project that I remember one where we built a solution for uh, at-risk pregnancy care. It was a, you know, my chief medical officer came to me and said, we have a clear need to for better education and better prenatal care, particularly for women at risk because they are in a later stage in their life and this is their first pregnancy or the first successful pregnancy, whatever. So we launched this project. We hired a company out of India, big, big IT firm. We gave them a contract to build it you know, two and a half, three million dollars worth of initial cost. Mm -hmm. 18 months later, they came back with the, their version of the product. My CMO looked at it and said, this is not what I want. Medical knowledge has changed since then. Uh, we have new guidelines on uh, prenatal care and back to the drawing board and, and on and on. And by, you know, three and a half, four years later and I think five or six million dollars later, we launched it. But it wasn't a very successful program, even though the intention was always very good because it just took too long. So time to market is a big issue. And then you have the usability problem. The biggest problem in health tech is that patients don't see more, don't want to have yet another single use application on their phone. They don't want to use it once and be done. And most of the time they won't engage because they don't see this to be relevant to their life on an ongoing basis. So adoption is hampered by the, the siloed nature of digital health and digital and health tech. Because I might give you an app to manage your weight. I might give you another app to manage your smoking. And I might give pretty even another app to manage uh, a risk of diabetes. But 
you know, the when the health episode is over, you stop working with the, that app and you throw it away, even though you should. So adoption is also hampered by usability and relevance to the patient. So these are the five big issues why healthcare is very slow to adopt technology and people wonder why. Well, this is why. Guys, I've done it many times and I've seen the results of success and failure. So we build SolveCare platform from the ground up with these principles in mind. So if you work backwards, Scare Wallet is a multi-use app by definition. It's relevant to you for, for your entire life. Mm. When you are young and healthy, when you are, uh, you know, at the, uh, when you need to be careful about your health, when you develop some chronic disease, when you reach later stage, when you need coordinated care, simply by changing the set of cards in your wallet, we can keep the wallet relevant to you for the, for the whole lifespan which means you become familiar with it, you become comfortable with it, you learn how to maximize the value of it to yourself, and it is something that you use like Instagram, you use it on a regular basis in every stage of your life. So that's how you achieve patient engagement and adoption. Instead of building custom apps, you'd simply deliver better cards. Time to market, we address that by having this whole authoring model where you can define the care model rather than code it. So care protocol lets you define roles, relationships, rules, compliance, consent, you just define it and the platform will enforce it. So it's what used to cost me, and I say this to my team all the time, if I had the care platform from SolveCare when I was working on the Obamacare project, so when I was running the, uh, the, the IT systems for Blue Cross, I could have done what used to take me two years on average in two months or less. Instead of spending 100 million, I might have spent a million uh, because 80-90% of my time and money was spent on replicating the same. It was only the 10-20% delta that I, I ultimately cared about. Mm -hmm. But every time I had to do something, I had to build the whole stack from ground up again and again. So, and they didn't talk to each other. So all those issues would be addressed with SolveCare and I would essentially be able to do 10 times more at with, with ten, one-tenth the cost. So that's the, the time to market and the cost issue. And then the compliance issue is built into SolveCare. We don't try to build compliance at a geography level. We build compliance at the transaction level inside the relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's so much easier to achieve compliance and exceed compliance than trying to first do bad things, then try to put an umbrella of control on that, right? First, you aggregate all the data. Then you try to put controls on it to prevent misuse of data. Well, don't aggregate the data. You don't. There will be no misuse. So... You know, our compliance model is to prevent things from happening, not try to control things when, after they have happened. So it's much easier to do. And then, of course, the risk is a lot lower because you can do things iteratively. You can launch one card, see how the patient responds to it, and then launch the second card. You don't need to go all in. You can do things in a very iterative, very fast way. So the whole idea of the care platform was that everything that I suffered from as a healthcare CIO in trying to get change done innovation, investment, ROI, compliance, data, risk, adoption, we built that into the platform. So that's why I think that, and I'm confident that we will see global adoption of, uh, of SolveCare. It's, it's quite an enormous project that you're undertaking. And um, it, I mean, with your expertise, it sounds like, I mean, of course, this is, this is your baby. <laughs> and I can't even imagine, you know, that I've been trying to tackle different questions, because I imagine it's a challenge to navigate all of the aforementioned that you mentioned. I mean, it is, it is our health. It's, it's a, it's a delicate subject. It is about the people and our health first. So, so many things to think about. I just as a 
you know, so what are my sort of my last thoughts uh, as a patient from a patient point of view? You've launched a global telehealth teleconsultation solution, as I, as I understand, in, in about 20 countries or, or is it more now? No, it is. Um, it's actually being redone on the care chain. But yes, we launched the global telehealth exchange I see. on 20 countries. And uh, candidly, we realized during that launch that the layer one chain is inadequate to run this kind of a consultation solution. Mm-hmm. And we decided to step back and build care to chain based on our experience of running a 20 country system and realizing how slow and inefficient a non-healthcare chain can be. So now that the care chain is progressing to its um, its conclusion, we will relaunch Global Telehealth Exchange on care chain. Uh, so, But yes, it was a very successful launch, uh, but it also became very quickly apparent that it will not scale mm-hmm. uh, unless we address the layer one issues. So that's where the care chain project was accelerated. What would you say are your biggest bottlenecks or you're perhaps foreseeing bottlenecks in in the short term as you go on in 2023-2024? It's a great question. So, you know, I built many health tech companies before. This is not my first time around. Mm -hmm. Typically, you have uh, a demand generation problem where you have a solution, but the stakeholders aren't convinced and they aren't ready to buy. For us, it's a little bit different. For us, the problem is demand fulfillment. So as we see the intersection of clinicians wanting to author more NFTs, institutions wanting to author more care cards and care networks, and uh, patients wanting access to ever greater choice of networks and NFTs, we see that the uh, delivery and the, and the scaling of the organization and the whole ecosystem is, is where we need to focus our energy on. So it's really about how do we meet this surge this you know what i it's not exactly a tsunami but it is waves of demand that are coming and they're coming from different sides um so that's where we are currently bottlenecked is our ability to serve the ever-growing demand and that's why we are so focused on self-authoring and on uh, signing partners who can author for you or teaching people how to author themselves so it's really that we're not trying to evangelize to people we're trying to serve them because they come to us with hey, I want to build a traditional Chinese medicine network. I'm a group of 10 very competent physicians who have been practicing TCM for 30, 40 years, and we want to bring this to the world. Okay, well, that's probably about 50 different care cards, you know, and 10 different relationship models, and you need to put all that in place. Mm -hmm. So it's quite exciting time to be. So our biggest constraint in a simple sense is capital. We will later this year go to market and raise capital because... We have such a pipeline of customers, which are very exciting in what the kind of diseases and healthcare models they want to launch. And we need to make sure that they are uh, properly served and properly supported. That was one of my one of my last questions. How did you how did you manage to secure the funding for for such a, a project of this magnitude? So it's been a journey. Uh, when I started the company, I'm sure <laughs> uh, I funded it personally. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the first round, it was about a little bit more than $3 million I invested to launch. Mm -hmm. Then after that, we launched the first version of the platform and we got our first client uh, going. And then after that, we did a token sale in uh, 2018. Mm. And that raised the capital we needed to really build out the rest of the platform and launch several more networks. 
and that uh, led us to having client revenue. And that brings us to today where we have now achieved the majority of the platform to my original vision. And now this is all about growth from here on. So we will look to do a first true capital round, external round later this year, which would be our first capital round in the traditional sense, you know, a equity round or a convertible debt round working with capital partners. This will be the first time we will actually be going to market to raise capital from third parties. Well, Pradeep, this has been uh, quite a uh, deep dive conversation on self-care. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you would like to add that I perhaps have not asked? I'm sure there's so many different components, but is there anything that, uh, or a key takeaway that I did not uh, address that you would like to add? Well, first, thank you for a very engaging conversation. I enjoyed it as well. And as you said several times, it's a very deep topic. Mm-hmm. But it's a topic that is worthy of pursuit because if no one will step up and try to make healthcare better, then healthcare will not get better. Right. And that's something that we feel an obligation and uh, and the ability to do. So that self-care is as much a company as it is a mission. What I would end by saying is that while healthcare has been intractable in terms of its adoption to innovation, digitization, and patient engagement and Patient-centric healthcare has been mostly words, not reality. Mm. But as I look at the confluence of technologies like SolveCare using blockchain and Web3 and the emergence of AI to be able to supplement patient and provider experience and the ability of more accurate clinical diagnostics, things like um, where you can do EKG at home with the same clinical grade output as you might do in the lab and saves you a ton of time and costs you know, pennies on the dollar, you have the ability now to have more timely awareness of what's wrong, more uh, accurate, uh, more timely intervention of how to deal with whatever has gone wrong, if not prevent it altogether, mm-hmm. a more choice of care providers who can step in and look at your data and your information and give you uh, actionable advice, more collaboration between people, friends and family and physicians and specialists. So I believe that Platforms like SolveCare and the confluence of platforms like SolveCare with AI and, and clinical diagnostics and mobile computing in the hands of majority of humanity, healthcare over the, over the next 10 years will look completely different than the healthcare of the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not just because we are trying to drive that change, because the change is happening. It's a demographic shift started by COVID, but accelerating now on its own. Uh, you know, when people tell me, that healthcare is intractable and doesn't change. I say that is true, but you should say healthcare was intractable and did not change for the last 30, 40 years. But I think the future is going to be startlingly different. And we see signs of that. We see uh, traction in the market. And we do believe that, and, uh, and we have evidence uh, to, to back up our belief that we are going to del- have a much better healthcare system for most people on the planet compared to what exists today. Well, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Pradeep, thank you very much for this talk. It was an honor to have you on our show. I would go further in saying, again, well, our greatest wealth is health. Uh, And as you've alluded, well, the COVID times have certainly proved that uh, that as well, as well as forced the digital landscape upon us. Now it's debatable since I'm also a mom, I would argue in some unhealthy ways for our children. But it is an inevitable path with which we need to make peace with 
as well as learn to utilize to our advantage. You are pioneering the way for healthcare to be accessible and the potential for the platform components and everything that you've spoken about today is just limitless. Uh, the open architecture platform with the tech you have is there. Now adoption and utility is key. I look forward to following Selfcare's milestones and um, wanted just to ask what is the best way to reach you, engage or participate with self-care or yourself in um, either funding or any kind of uh, any kind of form. Thank you for that. Um, there are many ways to connect with Selfcare. So as a you know, blockchain enthusiast or as a digital asset enthusiast, Web3 proponent. If you're interested in the tech side, we have certainly a lot we can share with you and engage you on. So, uh, and if you're a clinician, you want to publish content or you're, you want to monetize your competence, you want to build a better care delivery model for your patients or for your hospital, or if you're an insurance company, if you're a public health administrator, you're trying to build a better population health management policy or program, you know, we have the knowledge and the technology to help you. So connecting with us, you can connect on Telegram. We have a very active Telegram community. Uh, SolveCare is the name of the group. Uh, you can connect to us directly on LinkedIn. We are very active on LinkedIn and as SolveCare and also as Pradeep. So you can uh, find us very easily there. You can reach out directly to us at info at solve.care email address. Our website is solve.care. Uh, check us out there. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, um, but really uh, from a whatever mechanism suits you well, the thing that I will guarantee is that no matter how you reach out to us, if you reach out to us, we will respond. All our channels are monitored and all emails at info are read the same day and forwarded to the right executive. So it's not difficult to find us. Yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. You can connect with SolveCare on LinkedIn. Every channel is continuously monitored and we respond very, very quickly. But it's the, we are open to every, you know, whether you're a user of healthcare, you're a provider of healthcare, you're an administrator of healthcare, you're a designer of healthcare programs, you're a health tech company looking to innovate, and there is something for you in the platform. So we'll be more than happy to help. Wonderful. Thank you. We'll make sure that we include uh, the information in our show notes. Um, so Pradeep, best of luck, and uh, please do reach out if we can be of any more help in spreading the word or or deep diving into more important topics for a part due of, of this seance. Well, as we go through the, the focus on the top 10 disease conditions uh, takes form, yes. and we start to launch networks and NFTs for each of these disease conditions, we will be very happy to engage with your audience again. But keep an eye out. We are really focused on making the platform usable and relevant to as much of the humanity as we can. And we know that we have a built-in audience of about 5 billion people mm -hmm. who need what we are offering. Perfect. Pradeep, thank you so much. We'll definitely make sure that we follow you and stay connected. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to speak with you, Nina, and thank you for having me on your show. Likewise, Pradeep. Thanks again. Thanks again to our guests and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks also to the Bariam Music team for providing their music. You can check them out on bariammusic.com. All of the supporting information is on our website, blockchainrecorded.com. You can listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon podcasts, as well as on YouTube, Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter and YouTube, where we are super grateful for your support. Stay tuned for our next episode.